Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your host in this episode of the LUF Humanizing the Narrative podcast. Our guest in this episode is Aaron Miller. Aaron is a captain with the Fairfax County Fire Rescue Department. In this episode, we'll hear more about how Aaron's high-level baseball experiences and his competitive spirit have influenced his leadership philosophy and perspective on fire ground performance. Aaron, it's good to speak with you, brother. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. So let's let's start at the beginning. What was your uh, what was your childhood like? So I grew up in Jupiter, Florida. Uh, at the time, it was a small town. It's a it's a really exploded population base now, but it was a small town, South Florida, very, even back then, large baseball hotbed. I think the tri-county area between Palm Beach County, Broward, and Dade has produced more draft picks than uh, any area in the country. And my father played for both Penn State and then professionally later in his career. So I pretty much just grew up around the beach. So I surfed a lot. I fished a lot and I played baseball. Uh, later I played other sports, but I mean, as far back as I can remember, you know, and, and wanting to be like my dad, I had a baseball in my, in my hand and Florida's not a bad place to do that. So. So you, when did you develop a love for the game of baseball at an, at an early age, I assume? Yeah, I, I would say like my memory, you know, what I can process now, like four or five years old, I can, I can vividly remember being in the backyard with my dad playing, you know, day in, day out. Back then the Phillies were going through like their run, like Cruck and Dalton. And, and uh, yeah, Mitch Williams. Yeah. My dad was a huge Phillies fan. He's from Philly. So like okay. I, that, I vividly remember going through that era of baseball. And like, I was just so excited to, to be with my dad, like just talking about baseball and he would teach me all the nuances of it, you know, and, and, and he was, he was really good about it. So. Like, I would say five, four or five. So you knew you knew at an early age you wanted to play competitively? Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I think, I mean, as much as a, a young kid can know, like that first phase of your life, I think you, you're you wondering, my, my, I have an eight-year-old son and I can watch him go through this now. He's trying to process, am I, am I physically good enough to do this at, at some level? So that you're learning the physical skills and trying to do that. But in your mind, that competitiveness like you I am going to do I'm going to do this you know one, one way or another so uh yeah I think I think it's safe to say I knew pretty early on I want to pursue this what positions did you play primarily in, in your youth so growing up you know like most kids like if you if you're adept at the game like they they first started me at shortstop because I could throw a ball across the diamond. And then, you know, as you move up, you become more specialized. I became an outfielder because guess what? I, I can't field. Um, at a, and then at the next level in high school, guess what? I can't hit. Well, this kid can throw pretty hard. So I, I was a pitcher. And that's, and that's ultimately where I ended up was pitching and uh, relief pitching even more specialized. And then in your, in your high school years, you played, I'm assuming you played high school ball and then you played like a competitive level of club ball. 
Yeah. So I, I played, uh, our high school was very good. Um, they've won multiple state championships, uh, Jupiter high schools, a pretty renowned program. I would like to think, you know, my era of, of classmates and teammates, like we had a, a big part of building that program into what it is today. I primarily played outfield and, and pitched for them, but I also played football and baseball or in basketball rather, you know, in the high school phase. And then I was lucky enough to get a, a scholarship to Florida Atlantic coming out of high school. In between, there was what I guess now today is known as travel travel baseball. That's like huge now. Back then, it was, it was not as prevalent. Sure. Um, yeah, that, that was kind of the beginning phase of all that stuff. So I did. I, I played on a very specific team that all those kids ended up playing somewhere high-level uh, baseball later in their lives. But it was kind of like a murderer's row of South Florida kids. So, I mean, I, that, like you said, a, hot, a hotbed of baseball talent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Was the fire service at all on your, on your radar as a, as a kid or in high school? It was, and, and on, it's so, you know, I guess life is mysterious and works itself out. Right. So my, my mom's side of the family is heavily invested in Pittsburgh fire department. My grandfather was a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. Um, my dad was actually an EMT before he pursued other things in life. Um, so that was all there. I just didn't, I always respected it and, and it seemed like a, a great, you know, thing to do, but I was just so engrossed in baseball. You know, unfortunately I couldn't see anything but that in my young life. So singularly focused then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I said, fortunately and unfortunately like that, that consumed my, my thoughts. So when you get to college to play division one baseball, just out of curiosity, were, were you an athlete or were you a student athlete? <laughs> I, I would classify myself as an athlete. I say that if my mom ever hears this, she's going to shake her head. My, my first semester in college, I had a 0. 0.04 GPA. That's like really hard to do, right? Like you have to actually try to be that bad. And that, that ended quickly. You know, they basically, hey, you're not going to play, son. You're not going to be eligible to play. So I had to figure that out. But this is your head coach communicating this to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, <laughs> He's like, look, I don't, I don't know another way to tell you this. You won't be here, right? So um, the, I had to snap to it real quick. Life hits hard, you know, that at that stage. And then, oh, my God, I got to go to class. And I ended up in like 80 hours of study hall a week. Well, so, the good thing is I would assume you have a point zero four. It really can only go up. Yeah, I mean, anything I do is basically better than, than zero, you know. So <laughs> college was a shock. I'll just leave it at that. And then you, you would actually attend two, two different schools, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and, and we can get into kind of like the pathway of how that broke out. Um, I was very lucky. I was very fortunate to have a, I guess, like a, a second chance at baseball. FAU was very good to me. Um, and we can kind of get into more about when we start talking about the mental side of things and how I am the way I am today. Um, I ended up playing down the road at Lynn University, which is a division two school. And they ultimately won the College World Series. And I got a chance to coach there, play there. But uh, that actually shaped who I am in a huge way. But it was all, you know, back then it seemed very negative, but I can view that as very positive today as far as growth. Did you transfer directly from FAU to, to Lynn? At a certain point, that's what had to happen. I was lucky that NCAA rules with a certain level of involvement professionally you could if it was less than x per, you know percentage of time you could return but you can't you can't return to division one 
Okay. So, so that was, that was huge for me because I would have been out of baseball, like period. So the fact that that was able to happen, let me keep going to some, to some extent. And to be honest, I was no longer physically capable of doing the things that I could do before. Yeah. And then your professional stint came, I'm assuming after college. No, it was actually in between, which is, again, this is weird. So, but in between, so FAU is the highlight of my career. I was basically, and, I, and you and I have joked about this. I was, I wasn't very good. Right. Um, but I was, I was very Jekyll and Hyde performance wise. And it's very mental uh, rooted, not to brag, but just to give you a context here. So like I, I've thrown five no hitters in my, in my career. Wow. But on the same token, I have produced the most spectacularly bad performances that you will ever see. So it was all or nothing. Like you were going to absolutely obliterate them or they, or we were going to lose by 15 because I was just so mentally a mess, which leads, leads us to this conversation. Like what, why did that happen? So my career was littered with those opportunities. I got a professional chance based on potential i never really lived up to that potential F- physically i had it mentally i did not and that so and that was- so when you were in fau you were then drafted or you were signed as a free agent a free agency in the uh in the summer right so like the, they send you off to these summer leagues which is great in the nycbl i ended up throwing and this ultimately is like the culmination of my career sad as it is i threw back-to-back no hitters in that league and, and there was some fairly good competition at the time ryan braun happened to be there at the time uh for i don't know if you remember him from the Mm -hmm. brewers he played for miami he happened to be there at the time so there's a good level of baseball there i threw back-to-back no hitters and that drew that drew a lot of attention uh from scouts etc so i got a chance unfortunately it didn't work out you you know uh, i couldn't capitalize on that but primarily it was the it was the mental game that was not there so what what was that experience like both professionally as an athlete and as a young man to play, you know, that highlight high level summer ball, but then also play professionally. So I I think when you look back as a man, like you're not, you're not quite a man yet. Right. Like you don't, you don't know all the, the the truths of life and and what really matters and, and what the potential pitfalls and unfortunately consequences are of, of your behavior. So to put a young man like in those, those situations, right. It's high leverage situation. Everything matters. Every pitch matters. Every game matters to look at those kids that can do that now. Like when I look back at the game, you and I were talking about this morning, when I'm watching those kids process those moments, those guys are just true warriors, man. Like they, there's no other way to describe that, but they, they have extreme mental fortitude that, that I can't, it's hard to quantify but for them to be able to process that moment with that many people around them and they know that the weight of every professional scout is watching them and still deliver on those missions, like in every pitch and every at-bat, those guys are the epitome of mentally strong. You know, when I look back on that, like I can humbly tell you I was not that then at all. But I recognize later in my fire service career I can make good on that. I, I, there's a second chance. It's just not, it's just not baseball. Sure. You know, it, it happens to be my, my profession, my, my actual job. Yeah. And, and just to, as a point of context, you and I 
prior to starting the recording, we were talking about the LSU wake game last night, which was a pitcher's duel. Both starting pitchers went seven plus innings of scoreless baseball. But this this kid, I mean, he's 21, so in some ways he's a kid. But you watch his performance on the national stage; he's he's a he's a man yeah. uh, in terms of like his, his maturity, right? This guy Paul Skeens, who can throw 100 plus miles an hour, and spent two years at the Air Force Academy before transferring to LSU. This guy's going to going to be a high round draft choice here soon and we playing professional baseball but if you look at you know the, the mental fortitude certainly but then if you look at the maturity and one of the great points you had made is like he's he's that good he's that mature he's he's that mentally sound that he he can actually enjoy competing like actually in the moment he, he has the ability to to kind of smile the moment something doesn't go his way or he recognizes yeah it's it's really uh really impressive to to see that yeah yeah absolutely I think I think that's like quintessential right like if I see a kid that throws that hard and he's actually smiling about the time that he's having out there in a moment of that magnitude um while while maintaining the the warrior competitive spirit right the composure right like he's he's still he's still a a trained killer out there but he he's enjoying himself and, and I often think about something Fader said when you guys came to Fairfax in the, in the class that we had, we'll talk about that later, but it's the constant reframing of the moment. Like he, he is reframing each moment at such speed and play and putting himself mentally in a place where it doesn't consume him. And that's, to me, that's, that's nothing short of amazing. That's why I think, and it's nuanced and sometimes it's a point of, of controversy or debate in a classroom because guys are hearing it for the first time and, and it seems a little counterintuitive. That's why Fader and myself and probably you, I, that's why I tend to favor this, this notion of mental agility over mental toughness. Th- there's a time and place to be tough, but more times than not, it's about demonstrating agility and, and recognizing that sometimes most of us that, that want to perform at a, at a high level and be the best versions of ourselves we're kind of guilty of putting force before finesse. Yeah. Right. But that, that finesse, that force has to follow that finesse, particularly in something that requires the fine motor skill precision that pitching does at a high level. But there's a lot of corollaries to, you know, forcing a door, like the door is designed to defeat force. Right. So like the, the finesse has to be there. And then once, once the finesse is in place, that force can, can follow. But that's why I, I think guys who have, performed at a high level and perhaps struggle, but have been able to observe those that really compete and perform well at a, at a really high level. You know, we, we've been fortunate to do over the course of our careers, both in baseball and then in the fire service, you, you recognize like just how invaluable that, that mental agility can be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't agree more. The, the agility part is, is spot on. And when you think about what it is, both baseball and fire service, what it is they're asking us to do, right? So like we're, we're in some form of combat, right? Like there's no, there's no actual bullets being fired, but it's, it's, a, it's a form of combat with, with an exterior foe. And your body's natural position, uh, natural response is to respond with force, right? I can just use myself as an example. I got to where I got in baseball because up until a certain point, I could physically assert myself on you, right? Like I threw hard enough and my breaking stuff was good enough, I could just literally throw it anywhere and they would just swing and miss, right? And then you get to a certain point where you can't throw it anywhere. You can't, they can hit that, right? And, and the game becomes smaller 
when you throw like a 95 mile an hour fastball two inches off the plate and the guy just lets it go like it's absolutely nothing and he doesn't even contemplate swinging because he knows it's a ball sure that is like demoralizing right like, like you're, i'm like what how 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 did he not swing at that right and now he knows i got to come to him and he's going to deposit that shit 10 miles from here over the fence <laughs> so go to the fire service right like from the officer seat if I let that opening five minutes consume me, the dynamics of the moment, the, the fire itself, you know, the trance of looking at it and, and the moment consuming me, I can easily default to responding with force or physical, physical exertion. And ultimately that, that serves almost nobody, right? Like, so to being able to control my, my emotions and my, you know, let's just be honest, some of your fears at times, right? whether it's external point of view about you or competency or mm -hmm. uh, hell, why we're here, right. Just to do a job for citizens and serve them. If I, if I don't come through on that promise, there's, there's heavy consequence. Right. But in that moment, I cannot operate under those weights. I, I have to be able to just execute. And I think that that is the agility part, what you're saying, the reef constant reframing of reality and agility is, is key to being able to do that. Yeah, the ability to kind of recognize when to push, when to kind of let the situation unfold, and then when to possibly even kind of dial it back a little bit, man. It's, it's that, the ability to control that, that throttle. While we're on the topic of baseball, we'll get a little bit deeper into uh, the performance aspect of, of firefighting from your perspective, but kind of humanize the narrative of what it is to be a minor league baseball player. So you grew up in South Florida, play competitive baseball, you go to Florida Atlantic, then you're playing minor league baseball after di displaying some bouts of talent on a larger stage. What is it like then to be playing minor league baseball in rural, austere parts of, of, of the U.S. with other young, young guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of this stuff's like, you know, colorful. Uh, so it's, you know, I'll try to paraphrase it, but um, it's really not as glamorous, you know, as you would think, like in my mind, I, and I, and I didn't get a long run, so I, I'm probably not the best person to speak about it, but I can tell you what I experienced. You know, my brother played for a lot longer, so he'd be a good one to ask. But in your mind, it's this glamorous thing, right? Like these guys have tons of money and, you know, you think you're going to be riding around in some sort of like limousine or something. And re the reality of all of that is, is you're making $400 a month, which is insanity, you know, and you're busing from place to place, like on crappy buses and you know, hours on end uh, in crappy motels and doing side jobs to, you know, to, to float yourself while, while trying to maintain, you know, your discipline on, on the game. And then like myself, and again, this is a less, lesson learned, right? If you really want something, true, truly really want something, um, I told my eight-year-old this week, and he, I think he took it to heart, so I'm happy, but like so, somebody is always working when you're not right like every day you're not working and i always call him billy i don't know why i call him billy but billy billy billy's working and he's getting better and you're not and i i just i'll be honest with you jason i did not i did not come through on that part as a young man because i was you know this is all part of minor league baseball i'm i'm in a different city every night i'm out chasing you know like there's there's women there's bars there's you know your buddies are out partying and that's great but your truth of the matter is, like I said, you're a 20 something year old man and your job is to play baseball at a competitive level. 
that got lost a lot of the time, you know, and you call it immaturity or, or, or just, you know, lack of follow through, right? Like that was a huge part of why I personally didn't succeed, but I watched it happen to guys next to me. I mean, when you put a bunch of 18 to 20 something year old alpha people in a room, things can happen and not all, not all of them are good. So yeah, I think the humility part of, of minor league baseball is, is it's a grind, right? Like it is not glamorous to many, ex like in many extents, it's not fun because you think about this, they, they are looking at you as a business proposition at that point. You no longer have a, a college or high school coach that has a personal investment in you as a person who truly cares about you as a person. It's put up, it's put up or shut up, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you're gone in a moment. I had no monetary investment in myself. So I, I really am inconsequential to them, right? So you, you are living every day basically wondering if it's the last day you ever play and for a lot of people it was and you know and eventually it was for me like it was so brief you know sometimes I just I don't even know if that was a career you know but like I said there's there was positives that came out of it yeah I mean you, ra you raise a couple of uh really insightful points that in some way kind of counter the narrative what it is to play professionally certainly at that at that level but you know what's impressive in light of what you shared is we, we have a, a couple of folks one in particular in the LUF network uh, who played in the minor league system for more than a decade and never once played on the, the big league level. But then ironically, but probably not surprisingly, has gone on to be, become a, a really highly valued coach in, in asset in, in professional baseball and has coached at the, at the big league level. Uh, and I anticipate at some point he's probably going to manage at the big league level. But I mean, you talk about the mental fortitude that is to, to endure that grind for 10 plus years, not necessarily knowing like what the outcome will, will be, right? But just kind of taking ownership of the process that, that, that is and making the, the most of it uh, really impressive, right? From your, your perspective, having, having done it? Yeah, I, I wish I, I, I don't know. Actually, let me rephrase that. I, I'm not sure if I want to know because knowing what, what I know now, I don't know him personally, but I can almost tell you that that guy is one of the most mentally agile people on the planet <laughs> to, to, to maintain minor league baseball readiness, like for that duration of time. Obviously, it speaks to his athletic skill, but mentally, that's a feat. And it's I, I don't know that I could do that. And I, I looking back on my career now as a as a 40 year old man, I can tell you I'm happy that my physical skill was taken from me because I would not have stopped, right? Like, and, and I, I hate to say this, but when I look back sometimes, I, I often think, well, what, what if I was in the fire service five, six years earlier? But you know what I mean? Like, where, where would I be? Would I be better off? You know, I wouldn't trade those experiences in baseball for the world. But unfortunately then, like my physical talent was snatched by life and injury, right? So, that stopped it forced me to do something else but a guy like that I mean I can honestly tell you just man to man I would have rode that train to, to any station it would have taken me forever baseball is like a disease man a good one you know what I mean like you 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 can't stop doing it and it's just such a great game 
and the people are great. So yeah, yeah, that guy, I mean, hats off to him. I think in many ways there, there's, um, you know, and the, the analogies or, or the metaphors don't necessarily resonate with, with everyone. Cause not everyone is a, is a fan, fan of our uh, nation, nation's pastime, which yeah, I, I, I get that, sure. but sure. it's, uh, I, I see the same in the New York city fire department, man. Like it, it's, it's uh, particularly in a job where you, you don't actually don't have to retire until you're 65, man. Like right. one of my, uh, perhaps one of my most influential mentors in a, in a boss in, in rescue too, that I had the distinct privilege of working with is like, it's like a roller coaster, man. And, and, and you can, you know, some folks make a trip and they get off. Some folks make a few trips and then some folks just, it's the, the longer you stay on for some folks, the harder it is to, to get off. And then you get to the point in your career where you still want to keep riding it, but you know, perhaps you, you don't have the, the physical capacity that you once did. But despite that, you just continue to make trips on, on the roller coaster that is. Yeah. I mean, we, we all we all work with those people, right? Like, I think you're, you're dead on. The fire service is a great parallel. I, I know guys that should have retired five, ten years ago, but but they can't. Right. Yeah. Because the love the love of the job is so strong and the and what this job means to to us as individuals is so strong. Baseball is the only thing I can personally relate that to because it's something I've, I've obsessed over this my entire life to such a degree and, and, you know, pursued a level of performance to such a degree that for it to be taken from you, you know, I, I can't help but think what happens when I lose this, you know, I, I often, I don't want to think about it, but throwing my last pitch in baseball is one of the most devastating memories of my life yes i know that some people will be like wow tough life but it it's the end of a, something you love right like it's it's like it's just, it's a turning of a chapter that not on your own accord and i often think about am i going to be able to walk away from the fire service any differently is it or is it going to be like something's been stolen from me um so i watch you know men and women struggle with that every day staying too long you know your body's breaking down but they're still out there. Right. But to, to what end? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where, I think that's where like the gratitude piece, I'm going to kind of touch on a couple of the softer yeah. skills here for a moment, but you know, things that like the faders particularly articulate about, but the gratitude piece or the mindful piece, or even in the grind or those moments where we're just looking to gain a competitive edge, just not losing sight of like how blessed we are to do the types of things that we, we do. And sometimes just taking a moment, just just to sit and just like process the fact that that on some level, man, despite the fact that we're probably trying to get take our game to the next level or get to another unit or another company or another promotion, more responsibility that like in this moment, like we're truly blessed, man. And on some level, we we made it like, you know, not not to say that we don't want to get better and that we don't have other you know aspirations but just kind of recognize the fact that we truly are blessed, man. I think that's kind of important. And I, and I look back sometimes now at other points in my career, both athletically and, and on the fire department or in the military. And I, I perhaps didn't do that to the extent that I, I wish I would have. Yeah. Do you find yourself, I, I question for you, do you find yourself, are you able to give yourself credit for your career and things you've done? Cause that, I think that's where I struggle. Like my pursuit of better often uh, results in, no credit uh internally um, yeah to some to some extent i think like the work ethic but when i look back at like a lot of the i don't know athletic or perhaps even professional even though i'm hesitant to even use the word success but but that i've enjoyed 
it's the people that that I've gotten to work with all yeah. along the way and people that took a really vested interest in me like I just went to my high school baseball coach just retired you know I haven't played for this guy 27 eight years and I went back and, and I hadn't even seen I've only seen the guy probably perhaps twice since I stopped playing for him and um I spent a lot of time thinking about the impact he had on me I wrote him I wrote him a note and it was pretty cool to like look back and to see like that many years ago even even some of the um things that I, I do or some of the values I, I hold as a Marine or as a fire officer, he shaped and influenced those. He had no idea when, when I was 16, 17 years old that he was, he was preparing me for life, you know, for leadership endeavors in combat or at, at fires in, in, in Brooklyn. But I, I go back, man, and he was, he was a critical resource along the way. So that said, as a player, you talked about kind of the different coaching style and college baseball as, as opposed to uh, professional baseball, but, or at least in the minor league system, but as a player, who did you try to emulate and who did you look up to? And were there any coaches along the way who were particularly instrumental in your development and, and how so? Yeah. I mean, so like, well, I guess we chunk it out, like players, you know, I, I grew, like I was saying, I grew up in that, that Phillies era. And it's funny you brought up Mitch Williams because the, the wild thing, right. He, he was like tremendously wild. I feel like uh, he was he either had it or he didn't. That that was basically me, right? And my dad, I, I love him, um, but he's he's like, dude, that's you, right? Like, like we're either we're gonna either win in spectacular fashion or lose in spectacular fashion. There's no in between. Were there periods where your teammates had the towel over their head? Like, you remember those um, moments in time where uh, Kurt Schilling put <laughs> the towel over his head because he just couldn't bring himself to watch Mitch Williams perform? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that, that was, I mean, if I, if I could ex explain my um, unspectacular career, that, that was basically it is there's a 25% chance you're going to witness like some really amazing baseball, but there's a 75% chance that this is all going to the shitter because Aaron's, you know, going to uncork one into the backstop for the 16th time or whatever. But Nolan Ryan, I, I would say was like, like, I just, the guy's like, just like a farm strong just gritty tough dude like i i loved that guy and he threw hard as all sin right so like i mean he he and he had a big time curveball so like that's who i wanted to be i mean who doesn't want to be nolan ryan sure um men mentally you'll see this play out like in my career i i they my my I had teammates that called me 3-0 which was the three i'm a i'm a person of three outcomes not like 3-0 count three outcomes. I'm either going to walk you, strike you out or hit you in the back. And those are the only three outcomes <laughs> that were available to me because I simply, I didn't want them to hit it at all. Right. Like that, that's how obsessive this got and ultimately led to my failure. But coaching wise, I was lucky enough um, at the time at Florida Atlantic uh, as a gentleman is coach Kevin Cooney. Um, and a lot of people don't, don't know about Florida Atlantic, but um, they actually, I think it, it might've gotten broken, but I'm not sure because I'm not up to current events, but we had the longest win streak in division one baseball uh, history. Uh, Florida Atlantic owned that. And, and coach Cooney was the, uh, you know, he was at the helm when that, when that went down uh, very prolific coach. I believe he coached at Montclair state before that. And I can tell you, it wasn't a good story for me at the time, but it shaped who I am as a man now. I'll try to abbreviate this. Uh, when I first got into college, I had a girlfriend, high school girlfriend that was at another college. I had 
left FAU, you know, late at night to, to go to a party to where she was at. And I got into a huge fight with like their baseball team. Right. Long story short, I show up to practice the next day with a face that looks like, uh, you know, I've been like 12 rounds or whatever. <laughs> and uh, they called him KC, Coach Cooney, Kevin Cooney. They KC said he stops me. Right. As soon as I walk in the dugout, he goes as a practice see me and I'm like oh my god I'm a freshman this guy doesn't even know my name really right and we ultimately I go through practice I'm dreading it and I have this uh, this guy sits me down and he said I mean I can remember this like it was yesterday and he said Aaron I I don't know what happened I don't want to know what happened I hope it was worth it but what I can tell you right now is that I don't care how good you are I only will have good men on this baseball team your talents are relevant to me. Your, your character is what matters to me in the end. And I won't put my name on somebody who's going to tarnish that, right? And, and the legacy of the program. So no, no bullshit, no bullshit. Uh, two months ago, Kevin Cooney calls me on the phone, not to talk about baseball. I'm thinking he wants to talk about baseball. He calls me because I, I restore old trucks. Like I, I like mechanical things. He calls me to talk about truck. He's got a truck he's trying to put together. And he's, he's talking about, hey, man, where do I get this part? How do I do this? What's the best way to do that? And all I want to talk about is baseball, right? Yeah. Like, and, but um, that man's character was so influential. I think that one small interaction, I'm sure to him, meant nothing. It was just like part of his daily routine. But that changed who I was. Like I, I had to click in uh morally to address that right so i would say as a coach he he stood out to me and and i've had others i don't want to shortchange any of these other guys but that that's a moment that stood out to me shaped who i was in the future so one of the recurring themes as you reflect back on your baseball career collegiately and professionally is the mental game like you know we're we're going back now a number of years but how how much attention from your perspective was given to that aspect of the game and how much if any access did you have to some of the resources that kids playing at that, at that level have access to today? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, we talked about some of this at leadership under fire. Uh, so and fader really like turned my light bulb back on. Um, so baseball, I would say you could, you could possibly argue that football is very, very cerebral as far as like from the quarterback position and analyzing, but I would say baseball has got to be at the forefront of, investment in mental skills right there's not a there's not a major league team it doesn't have a mental skills coach um a sports psychologist uh and and many of them right like they're so heavily invested in this in this uh, part of the game because they have truly figured out that i mean i and some people may raise an eyebrow here 90 percent of that game is mental right like the nuances of baseball are controlled by the the guy who is mentally in control. I mean, you look at a guy like Greg Maddox, but you can't, how can you, how can you explain that to me? He doesn't have overpowering stuff. He throws like 88 miles an hour. Yes, it moves, but he is literally like just mind blasting you, right? Like he's confounding you mentally. So I was exposed to that at a pretty young age. Like, like I said, I had my issues mentally. So they were trying to figure me out what was wrong, quote unquote, wrong with me. Um, so I, I saw, 
uh, I went to a sports psychologist. I did, I did get exposed to mental skills coaches at, um, at a, at a younger age, you know, or early twenties and that I know I've, I've buddies who are still in baseball as far as coaching and scouting and the investment in that, like, I can't overstate that. Like they, they are, they're very invested in understanding the mental performance side. Yeah. To the extent it's become so mainstream to the extent that like when you and I played uh, and I was a few years, I'm a few years older than you, but if you had had access to those resources or you had been able to somehow talk about maturity and forethought, but been able to somehow incorporate a, a deeper appreciation for, for that aspect into your, your regimen, right. Your, your repertoire, like how you approach everything that you do, preparation, execution, reflection. If you had been able to do that, arguably would have, you would have had a competitive edge, but today, a lot of those resources, it's kind of like the analysis of, of data, right? Like yeah. every, yeah. every organization for the most part has, has made such a, a considerable investment in those resources that at the end of the day, that's just part of being a professional, right? Like it's yeah. like, I look back now, like the resources, even within the LUF team that the resources that we have access to, I'm like, man, this, I would have probably been able to compete at a higher level with access to these resources. But, but today, you know, you're watching these guys play on a national stage, these big time D1 programs or, or professionally, like those, those resources are much more commonplace. But I, I want to I transition now from baseball to firefighting and, and kind of explore your entry into the fire service. Uh, like when, when, where, and most importantly, why? Yeah. Okay. So uh, like most, what I would say I experienced most, you know, guys that flamed out of baseball, um, you go, so let, I think this would be uh 2008, nine ish. I flame out. I clung to the game like any of us would. Um, I coached right for, for a little while. I, I was lucky enough to, they let me uh, coach at Lynn for a while and I didn't know what to do. I had no purpose. I lost my purpose right in life basically. And you know, obviously coaching in college, especially a D2 college, that, that ain't paying. Um, so now I got to get on with my adult life. You know, I'm probably 26, 27 ish years old at this point. So I try to go get, I get a job at a mortgage company, right? Like, and this, and if you think about the context of this, the time 2008, like what happened in 2008, yeah. right? It, so in, in Florida, right? Yeah. In Florida. Both places. Yeah. Right. All right. 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 So, I, I, I have an idea where, where I wasn't aware that you had done this of the fact that you had done this, but I, I kind of have a, a sense that I kind of know where this is going, but go, please continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can see that the, the fall setting up here. Right. So I, I, I get a job at a mortgage company and uh, with a guy that I played ball with in college, he gets me the job um, like good teammates do. Right. And I can't tell you, Jace, I, I hated it so much. Like I, I couldn't hate, the the corporate setting like it, it just like defiled my soul like the, the you know the the rat pill like you eat the pellet every day kind of kind of mentality like we don't really know what we're doing but we're just showing up and then the, the crash happens right and i get released from this horrible job um, you get cut yeah i get cut and, and luckily this is a good cut right and um again i have no purpose so uh, luckily at the time man this is a, again a guy who grew, had great influence over me um at the time 
He's a lieutenant. Chris Sullivan is his name. He's a lieutenant down in Hollywood, Florida. Um, great guy. I, I was hanging out with him just arbitrarily through friends. We became friends. And this guy was such, such a strong moral character and such, such like a guy that you wanted to be right. When, when we, just when we went out, like his, his, you know, just the way he carried himself, everything about this guy was professional and, and strong and clean. And like, you just wanted to emulate him, right. As a friend or a, as a man. Right. And he, he, one night we're out, you know, knocking a couple back and he just leans over to me and goes, bro, like, why don't you get into the fire service? And I was like, isn't it too late for that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, shouldn't I have done that like a long time ago? And he's like, no, no, you know, like, like, bro, you should do this. You should do this. He's like, I think you'd be a good, a good fit. So that was it, right? This one night at a bar with, with a Lieutenant uh, from Hollywood, Florida. And I'm, I'm off to like become a paramedic and become, you know, go to fire school. And I would never have bet on that being the case, like come, coming into like my, you know, my young twenties. Um, but again, like my, my mom, my dad, my, fa- my greater family at large, like the fire service is a huge part of their life. And somehow it just naturally felt like the, this is the right thing to do. And as soon as I got to fire Academy and, and went bam, there it was right the team thing yeah. oh my god the team is back like I, ha- I have the team I have the guys I, I have all the camaraderie and the support system and, and the competitive nature of these people and I, I instantly this is it this is I'm gonna this is what I'm gonna do right like there's no there's no other options at this point H- how do I succeed that was the entry point so you your, your entry point is in Florida. How do you wind up in Northern Virginia? Yeah, so um, sort sort of a a bittersweet story here because um, it it's really hard to deal with even to this day. So when I was in fire school, I'm um, one of my best. I ended up meeting one of my best friends in life. Um, his name was Justin Walker. We went to fire uh, academy down in Florida together, and I, I think it was just an arbitrary phone call from a friend again played baseball with right he's up here he's playing for the alexandria beatles and he calls me and he goes hey man um i i know you're doing that fire thing he goes there's this huge fire department up here and they're just there's they got hiring things all over the place are you like are you looking for a job and i was like yeah yeah like I, i need a place to work you know so i turned to justin and we're both florida like we've been in florida our whole lives you know and I'm like, hey, bro, you want to put in for this? And he's like, yeah, what, why not? What the hell? Because right? at the time, you know, remember post-2008, there's a lot of layoffs, right? It was mass sure. layoffs. Uh, and Florida, Florida was going, especially the fire service in Florida, was hit very hard. So we were showing up to hiring processes, and there was 2,000 dudes showing up, half of which had been laid off, and they had experience. And it was very, it was very hard for us to compete, uh, being brand new boots, you know? So we put in for Fairfax County. Uh, luckily, we were paramedics and they were, you know, Fairfax desperately needed paramedics at the time. And if you want to talk about another influential person in my life, Captain at the time, Cheryl Hemingway, she was the head recruiter. She basically became Justin and I's surrogate mother. Uh, <laughs> like, like she, I think she knew we were really rough around the edges, but she, she kind of took a vested interest in us and like us making it and not being the riffraff that we could have been and making us into, into good young men. So ultimately Justin and I got the call the same day. Uh, we were in the same recruit class. We went through Fairfax's fire Academy together. 
I'll try to paraphrase this because it, it gets kind of deep, but um, it, it was fairly well publicized. Just, Justin was lost at sea in a, a boating accident. It'll be four years this come this year. And uh, he was never found again. Um, and that was pretty well documented. Um, I, I went down there with a couple other guys from the department for the search. And uh, that, that was a brutal turning point in my life. But it also, like, again, bittersweet. I lost one of my best friends in life. But what I learned from that guy, I will never forget. Being an officer was never something I was going to pursue. And the, day, the last conversation I ever had with him, and it's like, this is like just bringing me to tears thinking about it. But the last conversation I ever had with him, we had decided to take the lieutenant's test. And he, he basically made me do it. He's like, you're doing this with me. And he, he had not done as well as, as he had hoped, right? And the last conversation I had with him was, hey, man, we're still going to get made. You know, we're going to be an officer in the fire department. That's a good thing. And he was so excited, like, for that next thing. And I just remember being like, this is, I don't even want to do this. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, was a, I wanted to be a driver. And I was a driver and I enjoyed it. So that was the last conversation we ever had. I know that's kind of a side tangent there. But um, that's how I got to Fairfax County. And that guy's friendship and and leadership but he didn't hold a position over me you know we were equals in rank and time but that guy led without without even trying you know he, he just had that charisma about him wow that's uh it's powerful powerful man i mean in the fact then that you he encouraged you to take the test you studied you got promoted to lieutenant you, you subsequently promoted to, to captain. You're serving as a, as a station commander. You know, you, you talked about the considerable influence that he had on you. You know, now as a, as a captain and as a unit leader, what are some of the, the key tenets of your command philosophy? So I, I can't stress this enough. And this was a very hard skill for me to understand as a younger man. And this is actually, you talk about Justin, like this is something we would rap about, you know, at night. I can't stress this enough is the first and foremost thing that I have to commit to is I have to genuinely care about my people and where that become everybody that's good at their job and likable. That's easy to care about that person. But what if you don't particularly get along with this person or, or they're not particularly skilled or they're just, you know, we all work with these people. They're, they're flat out opposition to, to progress and, and what what's good for the company right learning to force myself to genuinely care about what what's going on in those people's lives was a skill that i never thought i would need i i i, I thought like baseball like this is skill-based right this is if we perform well on the job that we'll have success well, that's only, that's just one piece. That is li literally only one piece. And it's, and it turns out it's kind of small, right? Because we can teach anybody to do the physical part of our job. I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. If we pull hose, throw ladders, four store, you know what I mean? Like those physical mm -hmm. skills can be taught, but if you go back to, to coach Cooney or, or Justin, the message is the same, right? Your, char your character really is the only thing that matters in, in a lot of these moments. So I had to, when I got a chance to have my own shift and, you know, I, I hope they feel this way. Like I, I have a genuine interest in, in my people's 
lives, their outside lives, their, their children, their wives, their, their husbands, like what makes these people tick has to matter to me to some degree. Right. I know that's probably maybe not the answer people may thought they would get, but I had to learn to invest in my people, um, whether I quote unquote, like them or not. When you do that, when you, when you were able to connect with people like that, and they know that you truly care for me, that's what translates into the ability to make the ask, right? So the fact that I back you at any level, anytime, any place, anywhere, Jason calls me, I show up, gives me the, the credibility and the cachet, right? The, like, like I've built up this rapport with you to now ask for you to execute at a high level, right? When I, when I want to train longer or more or be more heavily invested into things that you may, you know, man, I just wish he would stop. Like, can we just stop? You know, they're willing to do that for you now as a leader, right? They'll go the extra mile. They'll get better. They want to perform. Men, these men and women inherently want to do well, right? We just had leaders in the fire service. It's gotten very corporate. Let's just call it what it's gotten very corporate over the last decade or so, right? And that corporate influence you know, in a lot of ways it's, it's right. But in a lot of ways, it's hurt the culture, the micromanagement, right? Like I, I want to empower my people to, to solve their own problems and to, tr you know, to invest in themselves at a level that was invested in me. Right. And I got to take my hands off of that. You know, I got, it's hard to step back and let them be the ones that kind of guide their daily ship. Cause you're, there's a lot of trust there. Right. But if I truly invest in who they are as people, like try to better them, they inherently come through, right? Like time and time again, they inherently show up and come through. I have a driver right now. He, he exceeds me in time in the fire service. He's got 18 years in the job. I've only got going on 13. Uh, he knows more about the fire service than I think than I'll, that I'll ever, I'll ever know. I just had a conversation with a friend about this this morning. There are leaders who may view him because I outrank him view him as a threat or a some sort of insubordination but it, the truth of the matter is is in reality that guy outranks me in fire service life right like he he, right. he he is a true master of his craft so i have to empower that guy to be who he is and and basically influence the rest of my people right and that that was a skill again i didn't, I didn't know that i would need i just got to push my ego away and, and this this guy is what's best for business right at the same time, I have to try to get this guy to promote, right? Because he's so valuable, like he could be infinitely valuable, but at the same, I'm literally taking away my, my greatest weapon, right? right. Like that that self-serving part of you just, it can't, it can't be there, right? Like this guy deserves to be in front of more people, impacting more lives, impacting more firefighters, changing the way our fire department does business. For me to harbor him and not like, not nudge him towards a lieutenant test or something like that, like that, that's selfish, right? I would say that kind of sums up who I think I, I try to be as a captain, right? Like it's truly care about your people. I think, I think the physical skill stuff, right? Like the training speaks for itself. All of us seem to hold those. We're going to train. We're going to be good. We're going to do this well, right? It takes practice. It takes commitment. Yeah. That, that I would almost be like, no shit, no shit. I think all of us do that part well. It's the, it's the mental, what makes these people work? What makes them go? 
on a daily basis. Um, I, I got one guy who, who loves camping and campers and trucks and all kinds of stuff that are associated with that. And that's all he wants to talk, do with his off time. And that's awesome. But I don't know anything about that. Right. But guess what I'm going to learn about that because I need, he needs to see that I care about his outside life. Right. Conversely, the other one over here doesn't care about that at all. Right. She's got a, a, a young daughter who who's dating a person who plays baseball and he's going through his collegiate pursuit of baseball. Well, I definitely know about that. Right. So sure. I'm, I'm investing in that conversation with her. So I, I guess to sum it up as a little rambling, but you got to invest in your people. You, you, you must, or they'll sniff it out. Yeah. I, I don't think you rambled at all. I, I think you, uh, I think you, you offered much in a way of encouragement, insight, and, and some inspiration. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I appreciate all of that. So you and I met, you know, earlier this year when leadership under fire partnered with your department to deliver an optimizing human performance program to department leaders of various ranks and job time, you were in the course and now you're serving as one of the department's human performance program managers as we try to figure out what the roadmap looks going forward. And, you know, I got to say that having the opportunity to come in and collaborate and partner with the, with the Fairfax County Fire Rescue Department, um, you know, is, is, a, is a really big deal for, for LUF. And, and I mean, to be able to come in and collaborate and partner with, you know, a very forward thinking, progressive, professional, well-resourced department that lends a lot of influence to what we do, not only in the East Coast, right, or regionally, but like nationally and arguably even globally as it relates to some of those special operations capability sets. But so as it relates to human performance and, and firefighting, you know, you, you kind of unpack your, your, your playing career, some of the wins and losses associated with playing baseball at a high level. But I'm kind of curious, was there a particular moment in your fire service career where you recognized the performance parallels between competitive baseball and the fire ground? Was there like a, a, a particular moment that was like an epiphany or, or did it just kind of always, did you always see the parallels? I think to some degree you, you see them because kind of like I described, like the natural setting of the fire department is, is very parallel to, to the baseball setting, right? The, te the team orientation part, the, the, the competitiveness and the, um, the wanting to win, you know, component is there. However, I don't, you know, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, like, I don't know why I did not draw the parallels sooner. I'd been exposed to all this mental conditioning and mental training aspect in baseball and not until uh, I, to answer your question, yes, there, there was, I, I was given a very specific task with a good friend of mine, a fellow Lieutenant. Um, we now serve in the same battalion. Um, we were asked to go up to basic training, right? I, I had about a year on as a Lieutenant and I was like, well, what the hell? I'm, I'm out here trying to learn how to do my job. Why am I going up to basic training? Um, and they had a very specific ask, right? And that was, as I'm sure you guys are experiencing, right? Like the turnover rates in the fire service are, are so high post COVID. We have vacancies and, and overtimes at an all time high and we're trying to solve, solve these problems, right? Um, so effectively what needed to happen was we needed to shorten the time that we delivered a recruit. But at the same time, and these are some smart people, you know, our, our upper level management had decided that we, we are going to implement reality-based, a more reality-based package 
for our uh, recruits, right? Like how do we improve the product, but do it in, and also do it in less time. So I get up there and there's a great, there's a pro probably the greatest group of fire people I've ever been around was assembled. And like, if this was a fire station, like we, it was ridiculous, right? Like you had the best truck driver, the best, you know, the best of everything, right? So I was very happy to be with those people. And what they were asking was, it hit me like, what are we, act we're actually coaching. This is, this is actually coaching. How do I teach a skill, right? Like inherently get it to stick, but also give you, like, I need to draw out the, the why, right? And, the, and the, the how this works into the grand scheme of things, right? And th this is actually coaching. Well, wait, wait a second. What do I know? I, what, how do I know that this works? Baseball. I, I know the tenets of training a baseball player, right, to, to a really high degree. And then, wait, what else is here? Oh, man, it's that emotional, mental component because it's so dynamic, right? Like, you see it on your people's faces, the first, these young recruits, like, first time they see a fire, the eyeballs are huge and, you know, the, the hands turn to mush and all this other stuff, right? Oh, man, I also have been exposed to this. Uh, to a degree like i i, I kind of know how to combat some of this and that was it man it clicked and as life would have it not long after that you show up <laughs> right and it's like oh man someone has actually figured this out like this is important this is matters to such a degree and you and i have talked kind of offline like the scope of of what human factors or human performance is so large we, we could apply it to all these you know sectors within our departments it's such a huge task, but at its core, it's funny that the, the tenants are there, like baseball, fire department, sports in general. And I, I've heard you speak re really passionately and well on the, on the military, right? Like this is being done other places and that's how they're solving a lot of their issues. I, I don't want to say the fire service is late to the party, but it kind of, it kind of feels that way. Yeah. I mean, I would say that was it like that, that it, it all of a sudden hit me like a truck, like, no, no, do that do that here. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, very, very similar. And you, you know, you've heard me in, in detail kind of share some of those realizations that I had along the way, like, Hey, wait a second, maybe we're not giving this nearly as much a, a, attention as they, as we should as like an institution. But I think my first moment was, and I had several years working in companies that went to, you know, decent amount of fire duty. And I would, I would make mistakes sometimes like left them on devices, I would allow them to, to fester upstairs in my head. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching college baseball. I'm listening to a guy like Ken, Ken Revisa, who was like a legendary, perhaps one of the most renowned or prolific sport psychologists to ever influence the game of baseball. I revisit the mental game of baseball written by Dorfman and yeah. which I'd read in my, in my playing days. And I'm like, wait a second, man, I, as a pitcher, I, I knew what it was like to be resilient in the moment, to be able to like absorb failure, whether, you know, walking a guy, hitting a guy, a guy hitting a ball, you know, 400 plus feet off of me. Not that I was always optimal at it, being able to absorb it, but I knew what it was to be able to absorb it. And I'm like, wait a second, there, there's a lot of parallels to, to the fire gun. In fact, one of the guys in rescue, uh, that I worked with in Rescue 2, I really look up to, recently was speaking about another guy who, who I worked with, who I also really, really look up to, you know, two, two very high level performers. And, and he said something that was like so obvious, but, but yet it, he's like, it's not that he doesn't make mistakes. 
he commonly does. It's a, his ability to absorb that mistake and pivot and transition is, is so almost like seamless that you, you don't even recognize the fact that he actually made a, a, a micro right. mistake. And I'm like, wow, man. I mean, that's, that's what pitching is, right? You pitch the high level. I pitch at the, at the D1 level. So I'm like, wow. So like that on a tactical level. And then I think perhaps one of the, the more significant realizations once again, man, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's, it's kind of obvious, but yet it wasn't. Is it like, we look at all historically in the American fire service, certainly in the FDNY, but I think across the country is we looked at as skill development as, as being like instructor based, right? Cause there's a tactical technical component to it. But what was really missing from the approach, the methodology was this coaching component. Right. And, you know, cause the, the reality is we all have all seen it. Like, at the moment of truth, you had the physical and tactical and technical skills to succeed, but you come up short. Why do you come up short? Because in that moment, the pressure exceeded the, the privilege that that yeah. was, right? Yeah. And like, go back to the drawing board, like, yeah, there, there's, there needs to be an instructional, rote, tactical aspect to it. But then there's also this, this deeply human aspect to it. And I think, you know, you've heard me say this before, but I, I think it really resonates with you. And it sounds like it was almost like, uh, you, you, you know, a, a considerable moment of enlightenment for you as well is, yeah, we, we, need, we need instructors, but more, much more than instructors, we need like really, really good coaches yeah. um, in the American Fire Service. You know, you talked about like Coach Cooney at, at FAU, like who, who built a relationship with you along the way, who, who helped to instill and develop your, your, your character. You know, it was a lot more than just helping you to hit a spot with a particular pitch and a particular count, right? And there's there's a time and place for that, right? That's at the end of the day, that that's necessary too. But but I think there's too many guys out there. I'll try to say measure. There's too many guys out there trying to be the instructor. Like, yeah, we don't need we don't need, we don't need as many instructors as I, I I think we sometimes think we need as an institution. We we just need a lot more uh, a lot more guys like Justin, right? Who are just okay with being coaches, man. Right. Right. I, I can't agree more, Jason. I, I can't agree more that that kind of sums up like where, when, when you guys come, came in with your program, I mean, like the realization of that, like going through the five days with you guys and then basic training, it, it all hit at the perfect time for, uh, for me to say, no, I don't, I don't think this is important. I know, it, I, I know this is important to the fire service. Like we, we have to be better at this. That's been like, kind of like you explained it in the class. Like there, <laughs> after the first few days, like you're, you're just going to chew, you mentally just chew on this stuff. Like it's so stimulating and so like thought provoking, you almost feel very defeated. And I taught, you know, you know, Ben, well, like Ben Jenkins, like uh, he's helping me deliver this program and him and I just will just stare at each other. Like, do we know everything or do we know nothing? You know, you know, like, and it's just yeah. a kind of, uh, cycle of, of questioning, but ultimately, yeah, if you, I've, you know, you've heard me say this before, because there's that moment, particularly early in the course where guys are like, they, they want something more con concrete and they, they haven't quite figured out the methodology quite, quite yet. And it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with, with everyone, but it resonates with, with most particularly folks who are, who are ambitious, independent, you know, independent-minded, uh, competitive. But 
yeah, by design, man, there's more questions than there are, there are answers. And I think that's true for every professional endeavor, right? Like if you look, go back to baseball, but if you, you, you look at like uh, somebody like, I don't know, man, but Buck Showalter, who, who's very, very well respected in professional baseball and has been around forever. Right. He's, he's consistently reevaluating his, his approach, his methodology. Like he, he's constantly in, in search of like truth, right? Yeah. He evolves. He, he changes yeah. his behavior. He changes his, his, his mind. He changes his, his approach. Like, and here's a guy who's been coaching baseball for, for a very long time and is arguably probably one of the best skippers in the game. And that's just part of being a professional. I look at some of these, uh, you know, 30, 35 year general officers in the Marine Corps right now, you know, some pretty seasoned combat veterans who are pivoting and kind of revising and reforming the, the Marine Corps doctrine. These guys are, are thinkers, man, and, and scholars. And I don't necessarily mean in a, an overtly academic sense. Sure. Sure. I think that quality and look, whether or not you're going to be an executive level leader, you're going to be the senior guy. I mean, look at, look at Jimmy McNamara, right? Look at, right. His, look at his approach that he's, he's taken. I mean, here's a guy who, who's, who spent his entire career in the same, in the same firehouse, but has been able to kind of embrace this, this lifelong learner lifestyle to the benefit of not only his own firehouse, the FDNY, and yeah. now arguably the larger American fire service, a, se- a senior guy. Who, who up until probably a few years ago, not too many guys outside of his own fire outside any idea who he, who, who he even was. And he, he's, he's leading in many ways, kind of leading, leading up and, yeah. and affecting positive, uh, positive change. But nah, man, we, we've, uh, we really value uh, the relationship we've, we've built with you guys down there and even this conversation today. So we'll kind of wrap up, I got to ask you, what are you, uh, what are you excited about? What, what's on the horizon? Yeah, so um, the implementation of this whole thing, right? And I, I would just any anyone who's you know interested in this and looking to do this, and rightfully so, I think the advice that you gave Ben and I early on was take your time, don't like go headlong into it, you know, because it is exciting. I'm not gonna lie, I'd be, I'd be lying to you to tell you that I'm not excited about deploying thoughts and and programs that I have in mind, um, but think it through right like really flesh out what what your department needs as far as the, the human factors portion of this who stands the most to gain greatest good type of stuff and then you know like any like any job there's politics right so so now sure. be be cognizant of the politics it's there's politics there's culture exactly right our culture is here it, is longstanding and, and knows only a, a certain way, right? And, and sure. to come and I don't want to say ch- break is the wrong word. It's, this has a negative con- connotation, but to steer that culture towards towards a new goal is is a big task, right? Especially like FDNY is a massive ship, right? You guys are the Titanic. Um, we're, we're fairly large. Like to steer those ships takes time, right? And it takes a, a group effort. So right now, you know, Ben and I are just going back and forth about how, what, where, and why we implement these things. And it's just the planning stage, but we've already started to identify like key people, key leaders that will carry this football, right? Like they, like in ways that we, we can't, you know, so building your team, 
do the right thing, right? That, how far will that take you? Pretty much to the finish line of any endeavor in life, right? If you know your heart's in the right place and, you, and you're honestly trying to do right by your people, you kind of can't go wrong. But right now, I've had some projects that I was able to implement some human performance stuff because I had the, the ability to do so. But we are ready to do this in all of our platforms, you know, whether it be basic training, field training. Consequently, after you guys left, I went back to, and it's the last place I would have suspected, but EMS training in Fairfax County has been following these tenants for longer. I mean, they, they're so progressive in the, their approach. It, it shocked me. Like, they're like, well, we've been doing that for, you know, X amount of time. And I was like, oh, wow. Right. So the EMS side in our, in our department was actually very progressive in the, in the methodology department, right? Like how they're conducting their training. We have some people here and then in the field training side, we have a contingent of people that have been pushing elements of this for, for probably like the past five, six years. It, it's time, it's time to let that tiger out of the cage. You know, like it's, it's time to go. It's not, it's not time to try it. It's time to, it's time to do it. Um, so that, that's what excites me is we're, we're kind of our assistant chief uh, Shaw. Uh, he's the chief of operations. He fully backs us in this. And, and what, what more do you need? Right. If the operations chief says go, that yep. that's that's great, man. That, that that means go. So so I'm excited to see what what we can do. Yeah, and then while also affording you guys the, the, the latitude to execute an exercise yeah. initiative. I, absolutely, absolutely, right. And that, that's pushing down leadership down to to a level of impact, right? So it, it's not his job to to monitor every single thing. It's it's our job to to deploy the strategy and make it make it work for our people. So that I'm happy that we we're getting there. It's a really exciting time. We're, we're honored to have the opportunity to work with you guys and, and assist you perhaps more than anything, just encourage you. Yeah. There's, and, some, there's some days where the encouragement's very needed. <laughs> it goes back to coaching, man. In many ways it, 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 uh, it does. And, and folks like yourself, you know, played at a high level, you know, what a good, good coach looks like and you you know what a not not so good coach looks like in, in the effects that that individual will have on your development not only in a in a professional or you know an occupational or athletic context but the effects that have on you developing you for uh for endeavors outside of outside of work yeah yeah absolutely uh, uh certainly the lessons from bad leaders are are equally if not more important than than the good ones right like I definitely know what I don't want to do yeah. <laughs> uh, from some of those experiences. So yeah, it's absolutely true. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Coming off of 24, your willingness to, to jump on here this morning and, and have a, a conversation in which you uh, kind of opened up and traveled back in, in time to, to share some insight into how it's in, impacted you as, as a leader and kind of prepared you for, for where you are now. So we really appreciate it, brother. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I hope I hope any of that uh, was helpful to somebody. Um, I'll just say it took a long time for me to acknowledge what was deemed as maybe a failure to become a strength. I, I knew my baseball career didn't end the way I wanted to, but I never thought that, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, it would be the reason that failure would be the reason why I succeed at my new passion in life. And I think that's really important because I think, I think all of us go through hard times, man. You know, there's things that happen to us that, that in the moment just seem unfair or overwhelmingly negative. 
when you come out the other side, you are better. You just got to figure out what for, better for what. So, I mean, that'll just be my my last uh, thought. I think it's I think it's an appropriate way to to finish the conversation. And there's probably two words that I heard throughout the course of of the conversation today. If I embrace my inner fader for a moment, it's <laughs> it's gratitude and, and growth. So, yeah, yeah. Appreciate it. I, I love that guy. Tell him I love him. <laughs> Will do. All right, Jason. Thank you very much again for having me. I, I appreciate it. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.